Amen. And that's what God wants. He wants to explode in our midst. And as you will see, it's some of my statements that I make. As I said, turn to Psalm 86. You know, lately I've been in the Psalms in my, in my private Bible study, my personal Bible study. I love the Psalms. It seems that for every station in our lives, no matter where we're at, there's a Psalm for that. When you're at the high point of your life and, and everything is going well, you're healthy, your cupboard is full, your spouse is happy, Psalms 103 is for you. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Praise his holy name. When you're at the crossroads and need wisdom and discernment, Psalms 119 will show you how to achieve that. Six, verse 66 tells us, Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. And verse 73 says, Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. When you're confronted with severe trials and that there appears to be no way out, Psalm 121 will comfort you. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Today I want us to look at a psalm of lament. A lament by definition is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. Anyone have teenage girls in their household or have had teenage girls? No? Well, there's a couple of hands. I do, and she is such a drama queen. I have had occasion to pick her up from school, and she gets in the car and plops down on the seat, and I just have to ask, of course, rough day? I have no friends. My best friend Mia started hanging out with that obnoxious Emma. I've tried being friends with her, but she is just too bossy. She's saying that because she's too bossy. Or on another occasion, I have nothing to wear, and today is dress down day. Dress down day. Isn't that where you go all sloppy? But she has nothing to wear. I hate my hair. I can't do anything with it. So smart alecky grandpa says, well, I have clippers. Let's go for the ball look. (laughs) Grandpa is what I hear. Don't you see my dilemma, my lament? It's the end of the world and nobody cares. To her, these are things to lament. But... That's the teenage girl world. It's my second time around. You know, I had Marta to, to listen to. And I'm older now, but certainly no wiser when it comes to these matters. I hand her over to Josie. But in the, out in the real world, there are times of lament. As in grief over losing a loved one. 
One goes through periods of lamentation marked by periods of depression, loneliness, times of crying. What is that saying? You find yourself in the pit of despair. And I thought of that term, the pit of despair, and I chuckled because a movie I saw earlier, The Prince's Bride. Has anybody seen The Prince's Bride? Well, in there is is a, a pit of despair, they call it. And it's a secret dungeon <clears throat> containing the machine, which is a device that tortures the captives to their limits. Then they are nursed back to health by some albino nurses so they can get tortured over again, over and over It's a very funny movie, but I bring up the pit of despair because as they're being tortured, it's not really, it doesn't look like fun. Have you ever been there? There appears to be no end in sight. There seems to be no one that cares. No one that could end your suffering. That's where David finds himself as he writes Psalms 86. Let's read the entire psalm if you have your Bibles. It's only 17 verses and it's well worth the read. I am reading from the English Standard Version. Listen to see if you can hear the despair in David's tone. Reading verse 1. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You you are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and listen to my plea for grace. In the day of trouble, I will call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O God, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. And they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. 
Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame. Because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is alive and helpful to us, Father. Help us, Lord, to understand it and help me, Lord, to divide it properly, Lord. Let me step out of the way and only your voice be heard in Jesus' name. Amen. That is the way we should approach God, all of us. We are all children of God. Yes, we should approach him with that confidence And that assurance that we're children. But we should always keep in mind who he is. David calls him Lord. It will serve as well to remember that we are approaching the Lord. This is who God says he is. This is from God's own words. Exodus 34 and 6 says... The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It is to this God that God that David is approaching, not flippantly, not demanding, but reverently, contritely, humbly. And he declares that he is poor and needy. In the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 8, Jesus made that point. In verse 14 says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The wrong way to approach God is by our own good works. The right way to approach God is as an unworthy sinner pleading for mercy. You see, God does not owe you anything. Quite the opposite. You owe God everything. What a beautiful picture we see in verse 1. Incline your ear, O Lord. Picture that when you pray to God... That this grand, majestic King of kings and Lord of lords would incline his ear to you. And he does. He gives you his full attention. Not partly. Of all the things that are going on in heaven and all the praise and all the adoration. And all the prayers coming up to him at that time. He inclines his ear to you. And gives you his full attention. He loves his children. So we come to him as David. 
poor and needy. We must recognize the fact God is the source of all. We have because he has provided. You have a college degree because he provided the resources for you to attend. And he provided the mental capacity to absorb all that knowledge. You have that fine home and that good car. You have that job because God has provided it for you. He's given you the capacities to carry out your daily chores. He has uniquely equipped you with everything that you have. Think about this. When we talked about an extremely good musician or a good philosopher, or a great speaker, we call them that they are gifted. Oh, he's a gifted speaker. He's a gifted musician. Yeah? Who gave them that gift? If they are gifted, that means they received that gift from somewhere. And I tell you, they got it from God. After David approaches God, we find him praising. And this is a very important part of prayer. You see, prayer without praise and worship is incomplete. And how can we praise someone we do not know? We do not pray to strangers. Our God came to us through his son Jesus Other gods in other religions are angry gods that need to be placated. That same prayer that they pray five times a day needs to be repeated over and over every single day of their lives. And they don't even know if he hears them. But when you come to God and you come to him in praise and worship, that opens the gates. That's part of the protocol that we are engaging in. We come to God with worship. We come to God with open arms and open hearts and to praise him for his greatness and worship him for who he is. And then we enter into our prayers. But these other people, they don't know who they're praying for. But we do. Our God makes himself known to us through his creation. Psalms 119 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims the handiwork. Hallelujah. Romans 1 and 20, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Want to see God's power? Take a walk outside. Look up there. You may complain that it's been raining for two weeks. But God is powerful. God is the rainmaker. We know the maker of the wind, as the song says. Our God is an awesome God. That is what God is saying in verse 8. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor there any works like yours. That is who we pray to. A God who cares. 
a God who listens, and more importantly, a God that answers. But within this prayer, God, uh, David also makes other requests of God. You see, the, the and I'll get to it. Anyway, the, the makes other requests of God. You see them in verse two, and in verse three, and in verse four and six. 11, 16, and 17. Let's break these down. To learn about approaching God with our request. I see four requests, four main requests. And they're preserve me, gladden my soul, teach me, and show me a sign. Let's briefly look at each one of them. Verses 2 and 3 say, Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Here, David is asking God to preserve his life. Not because of his, any merits on his account, but because he belongs to God. God here, godly here, when he says, preserve my love for I am godly. Another translation is because I am holy. Here it is translated, like I said, another translation is holy. It says, preserve me, Lord. Keep me safe because I am holy. I have been set aside for you. You see, just as children depend on their parents for protection, or we in general as citizens of the United States depend depend on the laws of our country to keep us safe, we uh, depend on God to preserve us. I am your servant, he states, So I am depending on you, my master, to keep me safe. I am trusting in you as my God. I have no other to turn to. There's a chant I have had to endure all my life. And it's a play on the word Dan. Dan's the man. If he can't do it, no one can. Well, there's a lot of things I can't do. Well, we can chant that to God like David. Oh, Lord, you're our God. You can do it, and on that we trust. It kind of loses its meter and its rhyme, but not its veracity. It's still true. As he heard the thundering of Saul's pursuing army, he cried out, Preserve my life, O Lord. Be gracious to me, he goes on to see, to say. These are the terms uh, in the court of law that when a, depend- a defendant pleads guilty and throws himself on the mercy of the court, the mercy of the court still demands punishment. What the defendant is asking for is leniency. 
he will still have some form of punishment coming. There is a price to pay for your infractions. But the mercy, the graciousness of God is that we still have punishment coming for our sins. Death. But Jesus Christ stands with us in that holy courtroom and declares the price paid by the blood of the Lamb. Hallelujah. Here David knows God's nature is toward mercy. Toward mercy on his children. He knows that he has nothing to offer God for his request, but solely relying on God's mercy and his merciful nature. And it's more of a reminder to himself than to God when he says, as he cries out to God, all day, all day long I cry out. Where is an exhortation to keep us praying all the time in every season? It's right here. We should pray all the time, every season. Tozer is quoted as saying, that we should offer God a thousand prayers a day. And Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 17, Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What that means is to keep God at the forefront of your mind. Every minute of the day. He does. As we studied last week, he who watches over you never slumbers nor sleeps. We may not be under constant danger like David was, but we certainly need to pray for his protection. Whether it's a mass shooting or a drunk driver or road rage, There are perils that we need to pray to God. God, preserve me. Oh, Lord, preserve me as I go and as I come. And I exhort you, lay your hands on your children as you drop them off at school. Or as they leave the house, preserve their life, oh, Lord. Go with them and be merciful to them. So David prays, preserve me. And then he goes into verse 4. Gladden the soul of your servant for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. David finds himself in a season of lament. To say the least, it was not a joyful season for him. But he knew enough to know that exterior circumstances do not dictate and should not affect the joy of our soul. But during turmoil, it's not easy. When you're going through the valley, it's not easy. It is hard to sleep, as we said last week. It is hard to concentrate because you're in the turmoil. Jim Valvano, the famous NC State coach who died of cancer, is quoted as saying, Cancer can take away all my physical abilities, but it cannot touch my mind. 
It cannot touch my heart and it cannot touch my soul. Cannot. And it's the same thing to you. I do not know what Coach V's beliefs are, but this quote is so on point to what we're trying to say. What is going on outside does not need to be what is going on inside. Our soul and our spirit is our inner man. What we see on the outside here is our outer shell. When they do an autopsy on somebody, on the bodies, a soul is not going to be found there because the body is only a vessel. It is only one that carries the soul for the time that God has deemed that we will be here. Once the body ceases to function, the soul is released. The soul then is our attitudes, our character, the way we perceive things, the way we, we relate to people. That soul is the one that connects to God through his Holy Spirit living in us. And when this journey in this body is over, it leaves to be with God until we receive our glorious bodies at the second return of Christ. The soul is precious. Psalms 139 verse 13 says, For you formed me my inner parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My soul knows it very well. Do you find that a bit puzzling? My soul knows from my mother's womb or that I was fearfully and wonderfully made? In Romans 8 and 16 it says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That tells me that there is some communication going on within me, my soul, and with the Holy Spirit. Our soul is the decision maker of our being and it makes sense based on the input it is receiving. It receives input from our five senses, yes. Our, you know what those five senses are. I won't repeat them because I might miss one. I can't count to five. And, and, and it also receives input to whatever spirit is in us. If it's not the Holy Spirit that's speaking to us, well, you fill in the blank. But when your soul is connected to the Holy Spirit, your soul will cry out as in Psalm 42, 2. My soul thirsts for God, for, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before you? And Matthew 5 and 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This does not mean a craving. 
You sit around on a Sunday afternoon. You had a nice piece of chicken. The game is over. There's nothing to do. You go and open the refrigerator and you stand there and look and look for a snack. Nothing that strikes your fancy. So you close it. Now you open the freezer. Hmm, maybe a popsicle. That's a craving. But when you're hungry, you grab the leftovers from two days ago. You pop lid, you pop open the lid of the container, a quick sniff, and you dig in. You're hungry. When I'm working outside and, and uh, sweating up a storm, I get really thirsty. I ask Isabel to bring me some ice water, and she brings me these cups that have a little sipping straw. I tear the top off of that big boy and I gulp it down. I mean, water coming down my, my chin, dripping down my t-shirt and I'm all wet. I am thirsty, folks. I don't want a sippy cup. I want massive quantities and I want them now. That is what a soul that is thirsty and hungry for God is. I want God And I want him now. And I want all that I can get in the least amount of time. Putting on my prophet hat. You mind if I borrow it, Carol? To tell you the truth. The church of Jesus Christ is nowhere near hungry or thirsty for God. We want a snack. We are so happy when God starts showing up in our service But as soon as 12 o'clock rolls around or 8 o'clock on Wednesday rolls around, we start getting antsy. And we go home happy and saying, oh, what a wonderful service that was. Those were mere crumbs. When we get really hungry for God, we will stay and ask for more. We tell the rest, you all go on and have your chicken leg. I want God. Turn off the lights if you have to. I want God. Lock the doors if you have to. I want God. I'm hungry. And I'm thirsty. Here, you can have your hat back. So the psalmist prays, gladden my heart. Here it is. I'm lifting it up to you. Gladden it. For the joy of the Lord is my strength. And frankly, Lord, I do not feel very strong at this moment. I need you to gladden my soul. And when we do that, God is faithful. And he is attentive to our pleas. Isaiah 61 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. And he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself out like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And my soul just soars with joy. And I sing, He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice, for He has made me glad. 
And that's the, the joy of the Lord. Verse 11 then goes on, says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. We ask the Lord, or he asked the Lord to teach him. And we asked the Lord to teach us. But for that to happen, we must be teachable. We must have a teachable spirit. We need to come expecting God to teach us. Even in the simplest lessons that we could possibly get. And I get about as simple as you can get. But there is still something to be learned. If you close your mind, nothing will get in. So you have to have an open mind to receive. A teachable person is not one that is defensive. And it allows others to teach them. Some people are so arrogant as to close their minds to others. That they have prejudged to be beneath them. That, my brothers and sisters, is a form of rebellion. Proverbs 1 and 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Then there is the know-it-all that won't receive instruction because they've already read through the Bible two or three times. But scripture tells us that the word of God is alive. I can read one passage ten times and every time this Holy Spirit will give me a new pearl to, to put in my pearl jar. So to say I've read it two or three times and I have nothing to learn is the epitome of ignorance. Just when you think you have it all down, there's just so much more to learn. Proverbs 3 and 7 warns us, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Instead, let us heed the advice in Scripture in Proverbs 9, 9. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. I have served as a teacher in, for many years in many capacities, as a baseball coach, as a computer science teacher, as a Royal Ranger commander, as a Bible teacher, and as a preacher. And I have learned to spot those that are eager learners, those that are, have a teachable spirit. They all have the following characteristics. They take notes in class. They read extra materials. And I'll stop there and ask, how many books have you read to edify your spirit? Don't answer, it's just a rhetorical. Another characteristic is they ask questions. Now that comes with an asterisk because I've seen some unteachable spirit ask questions. And their question is, is more Phrase in such a way that they want to take over the class or they want to 
to show how much they know on the subject. It's still a question, but it's so above what the other people are learning. Those are show-offs. I hate being in class with those kind of people. Because they'll take over the class. And you as the teacher have to learn how to politely and strategically interrupt them and redirect them. But sometimes that doesn't even work. Another characteristic of a teachable spirit is that they listen intently. Some, when you try to teach them one-on-one, they just talk the whole time. They don't give you an opportunity to get a word in edgewise. They do not listen. They want to teach you. Another characteristic is they accept direction. You try to direct someone that doesn't have a teachable spirit, and they're going to get offended on you. Well, I never. Who does he think he is? And they have humble spirits. You see, a person with a humble spirit is a person that's going to absorb everything that the Lord has for them, no matter who is bringing it. Ask yourself this question. Do I have a teachable spirit? Yes? Then pray like David. Lord, teach me your way. And finally, in verse 17, David prays. Show me a sign of your favor. Those who, so those who hate me may see and be put to shame. Because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Whether you know it or not, people are watching you. When you testify to the Lord's blessing in your life, they are watching you for evidence of that blessing. They may be watching cynically, but when it gets confirmed, that's when it says they will be put to shame. If you testify that God is blessing you financially, then your witness should verify that. But if you testify to God's blessing and you're mired in debt, then you bring shame to the Lord. But if you testify that God is blessing you and they see that you're a blessing to others, then that brings honor to the Lord. People who criticize you will be put to shame. Not by you, but by God. It's not your place to put anybody in any place. Show me a sign that you pray that others will see favor upon me. That's what you pray. Show me a sign, Lord, so that others will see your favor upon me. Not for, your, not for my glory, but for your glory, God. Psalm 109.28 says, Let them curse but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. In a time of lament, when all is caving in around you, when it appears that you're in the pit of despair and your only friend is despair, look up and ask God, incline your ear, O Lord, And answer me. 
for I am poor and needy. Then watch him work on your behalf. You can tell that David is in a lament. Saul has been chasing him for seven years. Just when he thought he could get comfortable in a camp, he hears the hoofbeats coming to get him. And he has to pack up and run again. That happened over and over for seven years. I've been in that crucible for about a year and it wears on you. But seven years of having that, you go into lament, a time of lament. But God will see you through. If you be like David and say, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Psalm 145 and 18 assures us this way. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. God is near. All you have to say is, Lord, incline your ear to me. Are you hungry and thirsty for God? I close with the following verse. A promise from God found in Joel 2.26. A wonderful verse. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God. Who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Are you in the pit? Look up and say, Lord, incline your ear. I am poor and needy. I need you, Lord.